0: This is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for the Christian with a short attention span or just short on time, designed to give you something to mentally or spiritually gnaw on throughout your day, a Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. And I'm your host, Nate Vainio. This episode is, They Stole My Bat Again. Upon arrival at the Heart Mountain internment camp near Cody, Wyoming, the guards confiscated his baseball bat. In the hands of the wrong person, an 11-year-old's bat could be used as a weapon, and they weren't taking any chances. Norman's parents had immigrated to the United States prior to the Asian Exclusion Act of 1924. Consequently, his parents were prohibited from becoming citizens. However, in 1931, Norman was born in San Jose, California, which solidified his citizenship. Norman and his family endured the internment camps and had adopted the mindset of working hard to prove that they were worthy of citizenship. They didn't turn a blind eye to the injustice of the internment camps. They just pressed on to prove to the powers that be that they were loyal and productive citizens. Eventually, Norman earned a degree from the University of California, Berkeley School of Business Administration and he promptly joined the Army, where he served as an intelligence officer in Japan and Korea. Shortly after his discharge from the Army, Norman began a career in politics, first as a council member in San Jose, then as its mayor. And in 1975, he began a 20-year stint as a U.S. congressman. As a congressman, Norman spearheaded several key historical pieces of legislation. Most notably, H.R. 442, also known as the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which sought redress and reparations for the violation of civil liberties of Japanese people during the internment camp era. A short side note here, H.R. 442 is an interesting yet totally coincidental number and not an intentional reference to the 442nd Regimental Combat Team that just so happened to be the only Japanese American unit in the Army during the same period as the internment. Yes, this is one of the strangest ironies of history. While many Japanese were being imprisoned by the U.S. during World War II, there were those Japanese who were given guns and allowed to fight for the U.S. of A. It's a bit bizarre. Interestingly enough, the attitude in Norman's family was the same attitude for those serving in the 442nd. They were fighting to show that they were loyal and productive citizens of the USA. For what it's worth, this regiment still holds the record for most medals awarded. Anyhow, H.R. 442, when signed into law by President Reagan, acknowledged that and apologized for the wrongdoings on behalf of the government and provided $20,000 for those affected by the internment. In 2000, President Clinton appointed Norman Secretary of Commerce, and he would serve Clinton less than a year before George W. Bush is elected. In an unconventional move, Bush invited Norman to be his Secretary of Transportation. Even though it's an awkward dynamic to be a Democrat in a Republican president's cabinet, Norm accepted. One of the most important episodes of his career would begin on September 11, 2001, but it was set up several months prior. Norman and his wife were invited to a dinner at Camp David with the President and the First Lady, Laura Bush. Toward the end of the dinner, President Bush began to inquire of Norman's experience in the internment camps. The conversation went on for nearly three hours, well past the president's usual bedtime. Apparently, he's one of those early-to-bed, early-to-rise kind of guys, but not that night. Anyhow, Norman covered what he saw, what he felt, what he experienced, and he covered the lingering effects it had on the Japanese community, and it left an indelible impression on the president. I hate to even mention the events of 9-11 so briefly. It seems I'm doing a disservice, dishonoring the lives of those who died and the sacrifice of so many relative to that day's events. But behind the scenes, there are some interesting events unfolding, and Norman becomes a key component in the process. On the heels of the 9-11 attack, emotions were in the red nationwide. There was a sense of panic and general suspicion. Young men could tell a fight was about to kick off, and many made their way to the recruiter's office. All the talk box radio and TV shows were gushing about what to do, what to watch out for, and how to, well, fill in the blank, with any subject related to fear and the attack. One idea for resolving some of the issues related to tracking down terrorists and defending ourselves against this threat was to create another internment-type system for Muslims until we get this all sorted out, of course, or some form of racial and theological profiling. Granted, this idea never really gained much traction, because in one of the first cabinet meetings after the attack, and addressing this issue in particular, President Bush, drawing from his Camp David conversation with Norman, declared, quote, "...we want to make sure that what happened to Norm in 1942 doesn't happen today." You can find that in an article entitled How Memories of Japanese-American Imprisonment During World War II Guided the U.S. Response to 9-11 by Susan Kamiyai. You can find that article at usc.edu. It's clear that this is the reason why it never gained significant traction. Norman's experience in the past and his presence in the current situation terminated that line of thinking and allowed our national energies and efforts to be focused on more urgent and effective fronts. Norman's life story, From Prison to the White House, loosely illustrates and accentuates four foundational principles for the Christian that are found in Romans 8, and I want to list them for you quickly. And by the way, This chapter would be a good one to go back and read in its entirety after the podcast. There's plenty of material to gnaw on there in Romans 8. But here are the four principles I want to look at in today's episode. One, God works things out for good for those called according to his purpose, which speaks to us of divine outcome. Second, if God is for us, who can be against us, which speaks to us of divine advantage. Thirdly, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, which speaks to us of divine ability. And lastly, there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God, which speaks to us of divine security. And now, as I do so often in this podcast, I want to take everything that we've talked about up to this point and set it on the back burner to simmer for a moment. We'll come back to it shortly. It's hard to have this conversation about Norman in Romans 8 without thinking of Joseph in the Old Testament. You can pick up his story in Genesis 30, and it carries on to the end of the book. But his story has some eerily similar elements to that of Norman, and I'm guessing they're similar to the situations that many of us may be in at the moment. Like us, he was loved by his parents, Like some of us, he was hated by his siblings or his fellow countrymen. Like some of us, he was assaulted by his siblings and his fellow countrymen. Like some of us, he was accused unjustly and served an unjust prison sentence, whether literal or figurative. Like some of us, he was forgotten in his darkest moments by those who promised they'd have his back. And like some of us, he was given a dream which never seemed to correspond to reality. In fact, the more that time went by, the more distance there seemed to be between the two. If Joseph ran into the Apostle Paul while hunkered down in the Egyptian prison, what do you think that conversation would look like? Now, I know this situation would involve time travel and all that, but the transfiguration proved that two guys from the past could show up in the present. Is it too much to think that God could do that in reverse? So, okay, I'm being a bit obnoxious here, but hypothetically, of course, think to yourself, what would Paul say to the future leader of Egypt while he's sitting in a prison cell? I imagine Paul would lean in and quietly speak, Joseph. Remember, God works all things out for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And you are called. Don't forget that. Don't forget that if God is for us, who can be against us? Encourage yourself with the fact that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And no matter how dark it seems, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. And in due season, Joseph is out of prison and in charge of things in Egypt. He's reunited with his family, and he utters these words about the most painful episode in his life, being sold into slavery by those who should have been fighting to protect him. And with that betrayal on the table needing to be reconciled, and with the brothers in fear for their life, Genesis records this interaction between the offended party and those who did the offending. Then his brothers went and fell down before him in confession. Then they said, Behold, we are your servants, your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Vengeance is his, not mine. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present outcome, that many people would be kept alive as they are this day. That's Genesis 50, verses 18 and 19 in the Amplified. He could just as easily have said, God works all things out for the good of those called according to his purpose. If you've never heard the story of Joseph, you certainly owe it to yourself to dig in and read it. And if it's been a while, well, read it again as well. There's so much here to gnaw on. Read it like a novel, then reread it and gnaw on it and ask God, what do you want to show me in this story? What do you want to open my eyes to see in your word? I was talking to my dad about reading long portions of scripture all in one setting, and he related an interesting story to me from his Bible college days. Now, I would set this conversation up against the backdrop that I fear too many pastors, Bible teachers, and others in the church community have had a soft-sell approach to encourage Bible reading, that being just get people to read a verse or a meme on Facebook or a chapter at best, or maybe three so they can get through the Bible in a year. These aren't necessarily bad ideas— but there's a depth of the scriptures that you'll never experience when you pick your way through the text this way. My dad mentioned that the professor of his Romans class had mandated that they read the book of Romans from beginning to end 10 or 11 times. I think it had to do with the number of weeks in the quarter, but they had to read it uninterrupted for it to count. And if you were interrupted, well, you had to start over. And I'm pretty sure they were on the honor system with this. Anyhow. Dad mentioned that the word just seemed to come alive more and more the more he read. Ultimately, they were reading it like a novel, start to finish in one setting, then coming back for round two and round three, etc., etc. And when you read the text from a macro perspective like this and get a solid feel for its flow, then getting into the micro-study verse-by-verse seems to have a little more zip. Anyhow, enough of the Bible study methodology for today. Let's uh, get back to the stories that are on the table. They stole his bat at age 12, threw him into prison. He and his family lost everything. Yet he manages, over the course of years, to find himself like Joseph, whispering words of wisdom into the ears of the most powerful man in the world, and it has a life-saving effect on millions. And despite the victories of life, they stole his bat one more time. One year, during his tenure as a congressman, as a token of appreciation, someone gave Norman a bat, an item that had more sentimental value than monetary value. And it would not be a problem in and of itself but there are rules for gifts in this arena. Gifts must fall below a certain dollar value to avoid being considered a bribe. That bat fell well below the value, but the signature on the bat by Hank Aaron put the value well over that limit. And as Norman Mineta tells a story in a documentary about his life, quote, The government stole my bat again, End quote. Life is comprised of the trials we've been through, the trials we are in, or the trials we will go through in the future. Past victories don't eliminate future trials. Certainly those trials correspond to greater victories, but whether those trials are behind you or if you're neck deep in them, whether you feel like a Joseph or a Norman, if someone has stolen your bat and thrown you into prison, I pray that you would rest in faith and confidence of the four foundational principles in Romans 8. God works things out for good for those called according to His purpose. Again, this speaks of divine outcome. Additionally, if God is for us, who can be against us, which speaks to us of divine advantage? Also, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, which speaks to us of divine ability. And lastly, There's nothing that'll separate us from the love of God, which speaks to us of divine security. I'm Nate Vinio, and I trust this episode has given you something to gnaw on for the rest of the day, shoot, maybe even the rest of the week. Please take time to dig into reading Joseph's story in Genesis, starting in chapter 30, or take some time to read Romans 8. There's so much more to gnaw on in both of these passages. Until next week, God bless.